Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. Today, we're talking about cults. This is one of the first episodes that I dreamed up when I decided to do this show. I saw a movie called Midsommar, which is amazing. One of my very favorite movies from the last few years. And by the way, I'm going to give some spoilers about that movie. So if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it and then come back. When that movie ended, I actually had tears in my eyes. I was happy for her. And I was overjoyed that she had found this family and had connected on that level and she had burned away her previous problems, the, 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 the life and the trauma that she had endured, and she had found her new home. And I was kind of surprised to find when I got out of the theater and was talking to my friends that I was the only one who thought it was a happy ending. <laughs> so I'm uh, not sure what that says about me, but it got me thinking into the mindset of cults and how someone gets indoctrinated into them and is willing to throw away the rest of their lives in order to be a part of this cult. And so I'm really excited to be talking about it today. In just a bit, I'll be speaking with cult mediation specialist Patrick Ryan, and we're going to learn a lot about cults from him. But first, 1BR is a new thriller about Sarah, who moves to Los Angeles to start a new life and lucks into a sweet one-bedroom apartment. Situated on a quiet street, it's got plenty of space, friendly tenants, and even a cute neighbor next door. But soon, Sarah learns she didn't choose this apartment. It chose her. With me here to talk about it is writer and director David Marmer. All right. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm super stoked. Uh, this is a, a movie that uh, was a bit under my radar, and then uh, I saw it was out there, and I was like, oh, wow, this is getting really good reviews. Uh, First-time <laughs> feature director. Uh, I think uh, RogerEbert.com had good a good review for it. Yeah, um, and, they were uh, really kind. Yeah, so I was like, this is definitely a movie people should be checking out then, because, um, wow, uh, not very often a, a, a film in this genre can come out of nowhere and get <laughs> that kind of a response. So I appreciate you speaking to me about it. Of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, you know, we've been sort of obviously really happy with the the critical response and, uh, and the audience response so far. So I'm, yeah, I'm just like, you know, happy to, happy to get the word out there and, and, uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Cool. Cool. So, uh, since this is your first feature and a lot of people may not know, uh, much about your past, I see, I have this vision that you moved to Los Angeles from wherever you're from and immediately started getting hit up to join cults. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so clear my head on that. Where did you actually get the idea uh, for the film? Well, I mean, it, the funny thing is that in some ways it did come from my, my experience of moving to Los Angeles, um, but, uh, but not from getting hit up to, to, to join cults. Um, particularly, uh, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get anybody to answer my calls back then, including cults. Um, but, uh, but no, you know, I moved to LA, uh, in my early twenties and, uh, you know, didn't know anybody here. It was kind of my first time living 
far from anybody I knew and living on my own. Um, and I had come down here for film school, you know, sort of chasing that dream as, you know, millions of others uh, do every year in LA. And, um, and I found it to be really um, kind of a, just a scary experience in, on an existential level in some way. Um, you know, I moved into an apartment complex that was pretty similar to the one that, that you see in the movie. And the whole experience was just really surreal. Like, you know, you're, I'd never experienced anything like that. I came from kind of a suburban background. Um, and then, you know, I went to college in a, a more densely sort of city type area. Um, and to be in this kind of, um, it's, it's just, it's hard to describe unless you've, unless you've experienced it, but these, this kind of like beautiful courtyard apartment, and you're sharing walls with all these people and you're waving to them on the breezeway and you don't know anything about them. And it never goes beyond a wave. Like nobody sort of got to know each other. It was not, it was not particularly neighborly. Um, and there was just something very odd about that, you know, just sort of wondering what was going on behind all these doors that were right around me. So that was what first got the wheels turning. And, you know, there were, there were little things that would happen, you know, just weird noises that I heard in my apartment that caused me to not be able to sleep. And the, you know, you can, you can see sort of echoes of that, especially in the beginning of the movie. But I think when it finally came together and felt like a movie was, I sort of independently got really interested in cults when I moved down here. And that's because so many of them start in LA, you know, from the Manson family um, to Synanon, which is probably the the group that the, the movie is most closely based on, um, you know, to the Source family. It's just, it seems to be kind of like a breeding ground for, for this type of thing. Um, and I got really fascinated by it as I, as I, a lot of people are, I mean, they're, they're fascinating sort of looks into human nature, right? Those two sort of thoughts, the, you know, those two ideas kind of came together and then I felt like, Oh, that, that feels like a movie. And that's where the first draft came out of. Yeah. I definitely think that uh, Los Angeles is a great place to have it because just from the, the outsider view, I know like in middle America, they think of Los Angeles as, you know, a bunch of Scientologists that <laughs> live a completely different life than the normal average person does. Um, so as soon as, as soon as you kind of set yourself in Los Angeles, you go, okay, get ready for a certain mindset. I think that the, uh, the apartment, uh, complex or what have you, that was a really cool place. Uh, I love the way it looked because there were times where it felt like a prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, for someone to go, wait a minute, so, someone's going to be trapped in an apartment complex. Come on. I'll remind you, there was a guy in Ohio who kept three women in a house for like 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and Nexium in New York, I think was based out of an apartment complex. I mean, they're, they're like, you know, these, these things happen, they, they happen right under our noses, you know? Yeah. And I, I most of the time when you think of cult movies, you think of, oh, it's going to be set out in the middle of nowhere in some mm -hmm. compound, uh, you know, Jonestown or what have you. But right. I thought that, uh, I thought the setting was a really good character, uh, of sorts in the film. Well, thank um, you. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because like, so I think many of these groups actually start in more urban environments. It's kind of the end game when they go off and get their own compound. And right. you know, that's always, that's always a bad sign, right? That's, that's where like the mass suicide is going to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, when, when they decide to move off to some other lo location yeah. and declare their own country, 
look out. It's not gonna it's uh, not gonna end well. Step one, quit the cult. Step two, buy <laughs> stock and Kool-Aid. Right, um, exactly. So speaking of cults, I know that there's certain uh scenes in the film that I thought of, oh, I think I've seen a documentary with this exact line of dialogue in it. And uh, so there's certain kinds of processes of the way that they break her down in order to uh, get her to join uh, the Mm -hmm. cult uh, and certain methods and, like I said, lines of dialogue. Did you intentionally kind of cherry pick some aspects of actual cults? Yes, yes. So there there's sort of two things going on in the movie. There's the sort of psychological techniques are really pretty much all taken from real uh, groups. Um, you know, there, there are sort of things that are directly out of Synanon. Um, the, the, you know, there, there are some, the, the polygraph stuff is pretty much auditing from Scientology. And then, um, and then there are the the sort of more coercive techniques, the more physical <laughs> techniques, and those are pretty much those are not from cults. Those are all based on things that um, that the U.S. government does, enhanced interrogation techniques, um, and as well as some things that the British government did during the Irish Troubles. Um, so these are all you know. I didn't. I, I made up hardly any of that stuff. That was all just stuff that people really do to other people, unfortunately. That's not good. No. Um, <laughs> having seen the film, that's not a good thing to hear. No. Um, let's be let's be nice to each other, folks. Yeah. Um, there's a couple. You know, this is much more of a drama thriller than it is a straight horror. If someone's looking for uh, jump scares every scene, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, but the scenes that do hit, I think, because of the character development and such, they hit harder. There is a I'll give a little trigger warning as far as animals go. There's uh, a little bit of uh, a cute little animal, uh, little cute little cat gets in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene, I don't want to give away too much, but there's a scene that almost reminded me of Jesus's uh, stigmata. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was intentional of like, hey, the stigmata and then the rebirth, that yeah. sort of thing. I mean, that's certainly, you know, you couldn't, write that scene without that crossing your mind. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's in some ways I, I viewed that as being part of their, their symbolism in some way that, you know, when you come out of that phase of things, not to give, not to hopefully give too much away, but when you come out of that phase of things, you are, you're kind of reborn into the, into the community. Um, so yeah, there, there's certainly, you know, I'm not trying to be overt, obviously, like I you know, the, the movie is not meant to be any kind of Christian allegory, but you know, the, these things are sort of deeply in our cultural memories, um, and it felt appropriate. Well, and I can see where a an actual cult would simply steal aspects of Christianity to sell their idea. Yes. You know, to me, that felt like something an actual cult would do. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, having no experience with cults myself. But, uh, well, I'm thankful to hear that. So... Apparently, if you start a cult, you can get uh, Nicole uh, Bryden Bloom uh, to potentially join, uh, <laughs> which is exciting because she's amazing. Yeah, uh, she's I, I had I had never heard of her before. Can you tell me where you found her and uh, how that came around? Because, like I said, I 
was not aware of who she was until then. And I'm like, wow, I need to keep an eye on what she does in the future. Yeah, no, I, we, you know, I didn't know her particularly either. She, um, this was her first lead role in a, in a movie. She had done, um, episodes of TV and and so forth. So she was definitely an up and coming actor and she, she did a lot of theater. Um, she's based in New York and does a lot of theater. And Um, just not to interrupt, but is there a scene in the, is there a single scene in this movie that she's not in? Um, I'm trying to, uh, yeah, there, there, there are some brief moments where we're focused on Lisa. Yeah. 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 But, but for the most part, no. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, you know, I remember telling everybody that going in, but specifically telling Nicole going in, like just be ready because most of this movie is going to play on your face. Like the, the, the make or break for all of this is going to be, is going to be you. Um, not to put too much pressure on you, but you know, she was totally unfazed by it. She's, she's incredible. Um, yeah, you know, she, we just, she put herself on tape. We, we sent out a, a, a casting call with some scenes and they went out to the agencies and she's with Gersh in New York and Gersh were fantastic. They sent us a bunch of people. Um, but she, she was one of the people who put herself on tape. And, you know, as soon as I saw her audition, I kind of sat up because, you know, in, I've done theater in the past as well. And with theater, you really are looking for just the strongest actor. You just want the strongest actor because you're 20 feet away from the audience. They, you know, you can get an actor to play a different age, to play a different type in film. You can't, you know, you, you like you, especially with a movie like this, where we didn't have a lot of time, didn't have a lot of budget, you you know, you, you don't have time to be trying to force somebody's energy into a different energy, if that makes sense. And so, you know, the first thing I saw was, oh, this person just feels like Sarah to me. And then, but there were other people who I felt that about as well. But then Nicole just, she first, there were, there were a couple things. One was that she was just so obviously smart. She had read the script, read the scenes that I'd sent and understood them and interpreted them in a way that almost nobody else did. She was finding things that, that I hadn't thought of. And that always makes me sit up and go, you know, okay. And I had specifically sent very difficult scenes, some of the harder scenes in the movie where there are a lot of sort of emotional layers going on. And, she, and it was all there, just even in the audition. And, you know, so I, she was top of my list from the beginning, but we didn't actually cast her initially. We had an opportunity to cast kind of a bigger name TV actress um, who start, was starring in her own show. And, you know, the producers felt that she would immediately, you know, we were such a small movie that, that if we cast this person, it would immediately, you know, put us in the black. It would immediately raise the profile of the movie. And I couldn't really argue with that. You know, they, they were the ones putting up the money. Um, and so, you know, we went down the road with this other actress right up till about four days before we were supposed to start shooting. And then she abruptly dropped out with no explanation um, and left us just, you know, there were some moments there where we really thought we just were not going to be able to make the movie. Like it just wasn't going to happen. But, um, you know, we regrouped and, um, you know, called Nicole and said, eh, we're starting in a few days. Do you think you could, you could do this? And she jumped at it and, and I will be forever grateful for that. I think she flew out the next day from New York. Um, I got about four hours to rehearse with her on, I think on Sunday. And then we started shooting on Monday. Well, I can understand from a producer's standpoint of you want a big name in there because that's immediately going to draw interest and yeah. all the, I, I get that. But I, but as a viewer, 
if there was a big recognizable star in that role, I'm not sure I would have been able to buy it as much as here's someone coming to Los Angeles who isn't secure and yes. is, you know, confused and alone. If the main character was a bigger star than everyone else in the film right. and was recognizable, I don't think that would have been able I don't think as a viewer I would have been as sold. So I no, think I that, agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think ultimately you guys went with the right choice and she killed it. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah, that was the thing that we, you know, we couldn't have known until she, she got here was that she, she's just, she's an incredibly good person. She's just a wonderful person. She was so hardworking and, you know, under, you've seen the movie under such difficult circumstances and moving really fast. We were, we shot in 15 days for the initial shoot and she would just get to these places immediately on take one, on take two. And we couldn't have done it without her. You know, I just think we couldn't have finished the movie. Well, I wonder how much of that, Hey, you have the role, get on a plane and get out here now. Um, that kind of, uh, confusion, I wonder how, I wonder if she was able to use that. <laughs> uh, in, I, yeah, I, I, in, I suppose that didn't hurt, you know. And in fact, in the film, her character is estranged from her family. I uh, won't explain why. Um, you know, she's insecure in her professional life in, in that she just moved to town and she's hoping she can make it. And she doesn't have any friends. Believe me, I know all about not having any friends. <laughs> um, so was was all of that kind of intentional and in putting that in to make her the perfect choice for a cult to recruit because at that oh, point yeah. you're you're just looking for friends you're looking for a connection yeah i mean all of those things that you 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 know you you picked up on everything like those are all the things that make a person vulnerable to these groups um you know there are people who are searching for something people who are insecure people who are lonely um those are the people who who gravitate toward these these groups and and are easily victimized so yeah that was all that was certainly part of it um you know it, it also was in some ways again that autobiographical like that was that all all those sort of aspects of her personality came from how i felt when i first moved here you know you move to la you know with with big dreams and you know i'm gonna be somebody and then you get here and you see the scale of it and the, and and how many people are already here super smart driven people super talented people and you know it, it just is overwhelming so that that feeling came directly from my own my own experience but it it is also you know it is in factually <laughs> what these cults are looking for right well and that's one thing is all of the most talented people and all of the most beautiful women in every city and every town in the country, they all move to L.A. Yes. And suddenly, uh-oh, yes. uh, everyone around me is exactly in the same spot as I, as I am. Right, so, right, right. Uh, yeah, it's um, – and maybe that's why uh, the cults uh, uh, form. I mean I think – yeah, I think like that's one reason why L.A. – you know, I think it is uniquely – a uniquely sort of isolating – place and a place where people come with sort of, you know, big dreams that tend to not pan out all the time. Um, they're, they're panning out for everyone involved in this film. I just want to say that. <laughs> well, um, I really appreciate that. So 
some of the other characters, uh, one thing that really kind of hit me, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give away too much, but Miss Stanhope, I thought that was a perfect addition to the film because, and I, I won't give away the whole story arc with that, but it really connected with me of this is her mom. Mm, I mean, oh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously not her mom. It's a character she's never met before uh, until she moves to L.A. But it, it really felt like what a perfect way to indoctrinate someone because in so many ways she took on that motherly figure oh, yeah. um when creating the other characters to to circle her did you kind of say yeah i'm gonna mess with her with this one and mess with and the the guy down the hallway is a boyfriend potentially right you know did you kind of create them to specifically to torture this girl you know <laughs> it's it's funny yeah in some ways yes um the answer to that is yes like i mean i think you know the the job of of any writer is basically to torture your main character as much as possible like that's 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 what you do in the course of a story um you find you know you find the triggers and you and you you know you find the, the weaknesses and you push on them um but it's funny like i think it was a kind of an intuitive process for me i started kind of figuring out who was in the complex and part of it was just looking around the complex i was living at the time and seeing who was there and there was kind of this like ghostly waif-like old woman who would come out on her balcony in a, in a dressing gown and smoke a cigarette on the balcony. And I never spoke to her, but I would just see her up there. And that was the initial seed for Miss Stanhope was just like wondering who this person is. But then as you go through the writing process and as you, as you're, 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 you know, rewriting and editing, you start to see the connections. And in fact, yeah, I mean, you hit on it exactly like the, the, Every, pretty much everybody in the movie, everybody in the in the community around her, is a is a surrogate family member in some way. Um, you know, Jerry is a surrogate father, and uh, and Brian is is like you say a, a surrogate you know boyfriend or partner, and Stanhope is definitely a surrogate mother. You mean the things that you find out about sort of Sarah's backstory with her mother, you understand why she reacts to Miss Stanhope the way she does. Um, so yeah, that was all, that was all intentional, but, but not sort of pre-planned if that makes sense. Uh, right. Well, you're just, uh, that darn good. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, honestly, it's about just, I'm not being afraid to do a whole lot of drafts because the, the, you discover things with each draft. That's, that's what happens to me anyway. Right. So writers out there don't think that what you wrote first was perfect. Right. Um, <laughs> see, we're learning here. Yes, it's, 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 yes. a, it's a learning process. Educational. And, I will say that he is starting his own cult. So if you guys uh, want <laughs> to learn up. more about writing, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And so you mentioned that the uh, the shooting schedule was really tight. Uh, yeah. I understand that you guys blazed through this in a public place. Yeah. So so the, the all the apartment exteriors. So whenever you see the breezeways, the the pool, the you know that trellis area, the the front foyer. Um, all that was in a real apartment complex that was full of residents. Um, you know, we, we couldn't afford to close down an apartment complex or, or anything like that. So we found this place up in Chatsworth. Um, and for whatever reason, they were willing to let us shoot there for four days for, for a reasonable price. And, you know, we had to kind of dodge around the residents. Um, but a lot of the, the, the people who lived there were lovely in, in a way that, like, I am not used to shooting in LA where people tend to be really upset about film crews because they happen all the time. 
These people were really nice. They were very accommodating. A few of them actually appear in the movie as extras. They were just interested and, and wanted to kind of hang out. So, yeah, I mean, the, the difficulties of it were, you know, it was uh, unlike the complex in the movie, it was not a no pets complex. So there were barking dogs that were constantly we had to wait for. And, and it was, it's a really big complex. So just getting from one end of it to the other would sometimes take, you know, take, it was almost like a company move. You would take like a half hour just to get from one end, get everybody from one end to the other. And then the, the trickiest part was that we didn't have access to any of the, the apartments. So we couldn't open any of the doors and, and uh, it's, you know, I don't want to sort of like kill the, the magic hopefully, but like whenever you see Brian come out of his apartment, we had to do so much weird camera stuff to get that to look like he was actually coming out of the apartment. And you'll notice you never see his door open. Huh? Well, I'm going to re rewatch it and, um, yeah. and it's discover all, the magic. It's all sound effects. You know, I was wondering about that actually, because, you know, they, you can't throw a script in Los Angeles without hitting four actors. Um, and I, I was wondering when they set up in that apartment complex, were there people that were angry that were there like out of work actors <laughs> that were angry that they weren't in the film? I'm so probably, but so, uh, so yeah. they ended up in the film. They ended up exactly. as extras uh, exactly. hanging out. Yeah. Oh, cool. No, it was a funny little place. It was kind of up in the valley, like a ways outside of, of LA proper. And I think, you know, it, it seemed like there were, it was kind of an older group of people living there. So it, I didn't get a vibe of like lots of, you know, young, hungry actors there, but there probably were some sort of faded, faded actors in there. I hope they weren't too angry. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they enjoyed being a part of it as much as they were. So did you have, um, I mean, I guess coming out of this, I know that it kind of developed naturally. Is there a message you want people to have as you as they come out of this, or is this just a fictional story of something that happened? <laughs> I, I'd say, like the the my first responsibility and the first thing that I would hope is just that people enjoy it. You know, that it's entertaining, that they're not bored, that they that they feel like they got some something out of it. You know, certainly for me, I've, it's funny. I've had people. One of the things that I've really enjoyed as the movie has come out is is having people interpret it in different ways, which I, I really love um, that there's sort of enough ambiguity and enough sort of open endedness in it that people see it differently, kind of depending on their own predilections. But, you know, I've had people who who are like really convinced that it's a political allegory. But for me, yeah. There is a metaphorical level to it, but really it, it's it's a personal one, which was just, you know, to me, there there's always been a bit of an internal uh, conflict between being true to myself and feeling like I am a good citizen uh, and, and citizen in the largest sense, you know, a, a member of a family, of a group of friends, uh, of, a, of a country, of the world. And so you know, I've, I've always felt tension there. Like, you know, there, I don't think, you know, you look at sort of on one political extreme, you have communism where there's not supposed to be any individual ownership and everybody, you know, everybody is, is, um, supposed to serve the state. And then, you know, on the other end, you would have libertarianism or, 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 you know, something along that line where, you know, it's just, you know, everybody doing for themselves. And I don't know that, 
and neither of those particularly appeals to me. And but I've never sort of known where to land on a personal level. And so I think in a way I, I was kind of working that out for myself in this. And I, I don't have an answer, but that's sort of the the tension that that I was that kind of drew me, I think, to the story as being more than just, you know, a scary story. Well, I like being able to watch a movie and figure out the answer myself and not be told, no, you have to think this about your film. Um, Although on one hand, it makes me feel guilty because I've moved around a lot. Like, like as a child, we moved all the time. So I went to several, I went to several different high schools even. And, um, and uh, because I bounced around, I was always the new kid in school. And even now, I mean, I, I have moved from state to state and everything a lot. And so I don't know my next door neighbor's name. Uh, right. <laughs> so uh, in one sense, I feel guilty. But then on the other sense, I actually feel good about that because I don't want them in it trying to get me into a cult. Well, and yeah, so there's definitely advantages. I have a feeling now that I've watched your film that the, the, the person next door is not someone I want to talk to. And I hope <laughs> they don't listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but, yes. I am I am not trying to uh uh go through what uh what she goes through in this film. Let's just right, put it that right. way cuz uh, And and now like right now we're literally all dangerous to each other, right? Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's probably good to stay away from your neighbors at the moment. Yeah, don't talk to me, don't cough on me. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm trying to uh not get corona. Yes. Um so uh just to kind of wrap up, what is what is next? I I heard somewhere that you have a sci-fi project coming next. So obviously I am legally bound by podcast geek rules uh-huh. to ask you about that sci-fi project. Uh, I'm sure you're going to spill all of the details right <laughs> here, right now. Yep. But if I can tell me, if you can tell me something. I can actually almost tell you nothing because the, so I'm making this movie with the same producers that did uh, one bedroom, uh, Alok Mishra and Shane Forster. Um, and uh, they're, they have basically told me, like, we don't want to tell anybody anything about this. They're, they're very excited about it. I am, too. This is a script that I've been working on for a long time, and I, I'm really excited about it. I can say that it is, I would call it grounded sci-fi. It's, it's kind of a, a sci-fi thriller, I guess. But the, I probably can't say anything more about it. But, you know, I hope, it'll, I hope we'll get it done quickly, and then, you know, we can, then we can talk about it. Uh, well, grounded sci-fi is really, and I know some people listening to this may want to kill me or something. I'm not that much into like laser swords and mm. I mean, it's great. It's fun. I love watching that type of thing, yeah. but, um, I really loved, uh, the TV show that, uh, was just out, uh, tales from the loop, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, which, yeah. yeah, I thought that was great. And it was the sci-fi element was just kind of, uh, to, to kickstart the story of whatever it was they wanted to explore yeah. about a relationship or a family or what have you. Yeah. And, um, that's what I'm, I love uh, about sci-fi as well. Yeah. So, um, I think that, uh, what you've done with this film of creating a character that we, uh, empathize with and care about, and then have to watch her go through <laughs> a bu- <laughs> uh, and what she her, goes right? through. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I think that that's, if you've got that same kind of a stew cooking for the sci-fi world, uh, that's very exciting to hear. Um, and uh, to everyone listening, I tried. What, do, what more <laughs> do you want from me? I tried to get the information. So uh, I guess 
everyone who hasn't seen one BR, one bedroom, uh, check it out. And, uh, you won't be disappointed. I really, really enjoyed the film. You're going to discover a new star that you may not have ever heard of before in yeah. uh, Nicole Bryden Bloom. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's amazing, and the film is great. And thank you for joining us to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So now I want to try to have a better understanding of cults. Why do people join them? Why do they stay? Uh, and the inner workings of the cults, and how do you escape it? So with me to discuss that now is Patrick Ryan, a cult mediation specialist. He's the founder and former head of TMX, the Organization of Ex-Members of Transcendental Meditation. He's contributed to the Cult Observer, Recovery from Cults, and is the co-author of Ethical Standards for Thought Reform Consultants. So first of all, can you explain to me the difference between a cult and and a religion. I've always heard that a religion is a cult plus time. And for a lot of people who are, you know, religious, everything but their religion is a cult. Um, And there are certain things, there's certain religions that I guess are accepted religions that seem to have what I would determine, what I would think would be cult-like activity, which is like, you know, like, I mean, not to bash, but a Scientology and stuff like that. Certain things that I've heard about it, it seems cultish. So, can you explain to me what that difference is? Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I can, I understand. I've been in this field for thirty-five years, so this debate is a long-standing, you know, discussion about what, how are we going to define cult. Um, so, what we found is that. Groups, and I'll use that word instead of cult, um, groups change, are different from time to time and place to place. And people are different from time to time to place to place. And what we look at is the interaction of a particular person at a particular time in their life with a particular group at a particular place in its sort of life cycle. That interaction is what we look at in my work. And so some people can have a cultic relationship with a group. And another person in the same group could not have a cultic relationship with that group. So I think to illustrate it, um, the group I was involved in was I was a follower of Maharishi Masyogi and Transcendental Meditation. So most people who learn TM are not in a cult. They've, they've probably spent way too much money uh, to learn a technique. Uh, they've been lied to about its origins and they've been lied to about a lot of things. Uh, Having been a teacher, I know we lied to people. Uh, We called it the sweet truth. So my mother learned TM. Uh, She wasn't in a cult, but I was in a level of TM that is a more rarefied area where I think I went to the Maharishi's University and and in the five years I was there, I spent 18 months in courses that were one month to three month long blocks of basically seven days a week, 24 hours a day, where you really were discouraged from writing letters, calling home, contact with the outside world. You were assigned a buddy. So I was in that TM. I had a cultic relationship with it. And at the upper levels that it's fostered. Uh, But most people don't. So similarly, I think with the Church of Scientology, there are those people who maybe take a course and they would technically be a Scientologist by the Scientology pers- uh, you know, viewpoint. 
and they might get some benefit from it. And then there's cultic parts of, you know, the people have cultic relationship with it, with the group. So people can have, in our worldview, sort of, uh, you could have a cultic relationship with another person, a one-on-one. It's where one person sort of t- takes over your sort of volition and your agency. Um, so I, these are complicated in some ways uh, subjects, and some people like to make them very simple. Like one person that's written many books describes a cult as a group that has a pyramid structure. At the top is a living leader. At the bottom, there's lots of members. At every level of the pyramid, different levels of information are given out. What the person thinks they're joining is different uh, than what the real teachings of the group are. The groups use techniques that impair critical thinking. Um, so you can come up with definitions, but they're problematic. Gotcha. You, you, you mentioned pyramid-like structure. One of my pet peeves is like multi-level marketing firms mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or even like there are militia groups who are gathering guns because at some point they think they're going to have to fight the government to the death. Mm-hmm. Are these also pseudo culty or well, they can be uh, certainly i mean I, I wouldn't disagree with you i know that uh, my colleague um joe kelly had worked a lot with multi-level marketing groups and there was one a particular one that you know is very popular uh and connect the one of the uh, founding people who connected their families you know in our government he worked there was two physicians who gave up their practices there was one was a surgeon to sell these products. And uh, you know, my colleague Joe Kelly was contacted by a wife of one of the doctors and said, you know, my husband has invested our, our kids' um, college education. He's not making any money. And he's got this skill because he was sold on a dream, a dream of, uh, of independence and it, it, this Dream that you could achieve your goals, that you didn't have to be, uh, you know, have go through the drudgery of day to day work um, by starting your own business. And so, in some multi level marketing systems, there's a lot of deception about. Uh, first of all, they don't often don't tell you when you go to their first recruiting meeting that it has anything to do with the na- the particular group or the particular product. Uh, they just talk about business opportunities, and then it's revealed to you. Um, and those groups that are multi level marketing, some of them, the upline the people above you, can be very authoritarian, they can be uh, abusive, uh, and they can turn into often some multi-level marketing uh, um, uplines are um, their self-improvement programs where they're really not selling the product, (laughs) vitamins, but they're really selling self-improvement. You mentioned there was a guy that was a doctor and everyone... Everyone looks at doctors and say, these are people who have achieved a certain level. It's it's strange to think that they would join something like that uh, or even an actual cult. Because when you think about cults, the, the layperson like myself thinks, okay, this is someone who's lost in life and what have you. Are there specific types of people who are – recruited? Why do people join, you know, a a doomsday or whatever cult? You know, again, 
in in the past there was some studies that said that the person the average person this is in the 70s had 2.5 years of college comes from middle to upper middle class family um average intelligence uh there, there was there's that kind of research i i don't think that it 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 describes the the sort of the experience of many people at this point in our society groups when people join groups often you're dealing with abstract concepts so someone who's not real bright I don't want to say it that way, but I, I guess I did. Uh, may have more difficulty doing dealing with abstract ideas, um, and so people who are intelligent, or who are educated, you know, if you do advanced math, that's not something that's concrete. It's not something you can put into bread rocks. These are concepts. You have to be sort of vassal with um, with ideas. The smarter you are, in some ways. I think you have more vulnerability because you can deal with abstract concepts. So what groups, as we look at them, do is frequently they get people to change their sort of fundamental assumption of how the universe functions, if we're talking about a spiritual group. Or they change the fundamental assumption of how our political system works. Or we change the fundamental assumption of how maybe business works. So if we, I came from an Irish Catholic family, so there's this you know, fundamental assumption I was raised with is there's uh, God and then there's Jesus and his, Jesus' mother was a virgin and somehow the Holy Spirit came and did this and he was born and somehow he um, got crucified and that somehow atoned for something that Adam and Eve had done. And if you do what you're supposed to, you go to heaven. And if you don't, you go to hell, except the nuns taught us there's these in-between places. Um, all right. So that's a fundamental assumption of how the universe works. So at the end of the day, you either go to heaven or hell, you know, and it's a lovely place to go or not so lovely place to go. If you can get someone to change their fundamental assumption about how the universe works, that you have, a, let's say, a reincarnation group that may be an Indian group, that you're, you're three point, there's 3.5 billion lifetimes you go through in different types of bodies, and this existence that we're in is just one more, but there are people that can achieve this purity where they are God, just on Earth. And so if you can change your, someone's fundamental assumption that that's how the universe works, then the smart person fills in all the rationalizations themselves. All you need to do is give them a little shove, and they will then do the rationalizations. Because we're talking about beliefs. These are not things that are tangible. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard about, um, obviously not everyone, but certain members of even like ISIS, in order to understand the concept of a galactic war that will, <laughs> you know, that will take over the world and all that, that there's a certain level of education that, uh, would have to be, uh, in their heads. Um, so, so go ahead. No, no. I mean, I think the, the there's again, with like with ISIS, there's going to be different levels. There are going to be those people that you described and I'm guessing, you know, when I, when those guys flew into the world trade center, I'm thinking, okay, what would it take like for me to do that? Well, I'd have to have some kind of mental construct that that I could adhere to that would in some way 
push away the the ramifications of this action. I would have to believe in something. So I'd have a lot of st- uh, uh, steps. And then there's those you know people that are grown up in Palestine or in some other place that is you know in poverty, and the people around them they feel um, kill their brother or their sister, and they get angry and they want vengeance. <laughs> Right. So, so you can you can have a, you know, the, I think the thing with cults is that there's a, a whole variety of experiences, and we want to make it's a there's a lot of grays and a lot of shades, and we I think as humans want things that are clear, clear boundaries, and uh, so I don't think it's one or the other. I I did a workshop with my colleague for, for a, 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 the European Union on. Um, uh, an organization they have called Exit, and it's to deal with de-radicalization. So what happens is, in essence, when people come back from Syria, um, this is a little exaggeration, but to illustrate it, they come back from Syria, they know they're going to go to jail. Uh, what do what what the European countries do with them? You know, they're going to go to jail. It's not like here, we're going to send them to Guantanamo. Um, they're going to go to jail for some period of time. And then when they're done being in jail, they're going to come out. So how do you sort of de-radicalize them? What's that process? And um, each sort of European Union country had its own approach to doing it because because they have their different cultures. And they also brought to the de-radicalization process their own cultural biases. Um, and we all have, we all come from different perspectives. We all come from different cultures, even within the United States. Like I came from this Irish Catholic culture. It's got its own rules and ethics and mores. Um, that's sort of imprinted upon me. And so I look at the world, you know, no, no matter how much I try to get the nuns out of my head, <laughs> I look through the world through some kind of lens. And so my approach to interacting with someone would be to de-radicalize them or to approach them would be different than somebody from a different country. So I think that what we have to look at is that there are a lot of different versions of these groups. So in, in, for simplicity, I would say if there's a thousand members of ISIS, then there's a thousand different ISISs. Sure. <laughs> as much as there, is, there, are, there are obvious similarities. But what we need to do, I think, is look at the differences because it's in the differences that we can facilitate change. So uh, in the uh, movie that we were uh, discussing earlier, uh, One Bedroom or One BR, uh, they use a torture system to kind of indoctrinate people into uh, their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to that kind of cult, the, the, the dark sides of cults that we, that we hear on the news from time to time, mm-hmm. how many of those are active and what are some of the methods that they would use to break someone's will? I think that there's probably a lot less of that uh, than than groups that you might call cultic that don't use torture and don't use those things. So that more describes when there's torture involved, classic brainwashing. And we would probably be looking at the works of Robert J. Lifton, uh, who studied the prisoners of war who came home from Korea and, and, and uh, people who were, who were put in environments where there was torture. And in essence, there was uh, a gun to their head, a metaphorical gun or a physical gun that said that either you believe or you die. So uh, it's either you're with us or we'll dispense with your existence. So uh, I'm with. Go ahead. 
I'm with him. Yeah. <laughs> if, okay. if it comes yeah. down to it. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. And then what we find, or I think research indicates, is that when that gun is removed, not very many people stay with the system because that sort of ideological totalism that that is being imposed um, has that element of torture or that element of, of, of their existence being dispensed. Groups can do this, achieve the same thing of getting allegiance by a lot more subtle ways, disguise techniques of hypnosis, um, getting people in states of reverie, like, you know, your, your, your football team gets a field goal, everybody's standing up, they're all cheering, you're all in reverie. Those are times when our critical thinking um, is sort of slackened off and people are more susceptible to suggestions or ideas. People entering into context, certain context. So if the context that you enter into I'm trying to think of exactly a way to explain it. So we'll use the near-death experience to, to explain the sort of co- idea of context. So if if you're raised as a, as a Catholic, when you study people who have near-death experiences and they're Catholic, then maybe Mary or Jesus comes to them. But if, if somebody that's raised a Hindu in India, when they have a near-death experience, Mary and Jesus don't pop in. You know, it might be Shiva, it might be Lakshmi, it's somebody else. As Same with somebody maybe who's raised in Islam. The, the visions are different because they're context-dependent, the environment that you're in. So the context that people have these sort of learning experiences that are tied to impairing people's critical thinking will change people. So... I think that you can get people, well, I think we know, we can get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do because of a context. So maybe I'm not a violent person and I don't get in fights and I don't shoot people. But if somebody came and they were going to, they killed my mother, I might, another side of me might come out. And I might be more, much more defensive of that. So if the context is saving my family's life, well, I might, I might do things that I wouldn't do in a normal context. So if you can create an environment for someone where they have that kind of experience, where like the experience, not really that your mother's being killed, but like that, then people can do things that they wouldn't normally do in everyday life. But uh, and so I, it's not limited to cults. Uh, it's across you know the human experience. In certain contexts, we do and behave in ways um, that we don't in other contexts. Sure. So the when you guys talk of brainwashing, mind control, you're not talking about the way we see in sci-fi movies no. uh, of you are under my spell or something like that. No. You're talking about a subtle manipulation of the way people are thinking. We, 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 exactly. We're, ta- we're talking about getting people to change, first of all, their fundamental assumptions of how the universe works, that Pat's God, there is no God, whatever it is, get people to do that. Um, and then give them experiences that validate those fundamental assumptions. So you create a context that says, I don't know, God is gold. <laughs> and and, and when, when you look at God, his skin is gold. Okay. So then you have somebody who has learned, knows, has learned, who's a member of a group, that God 
when he returns is going to be gold and his skin will be gold looking golden light so then if you put someone into a suggestible state of mind through maybe um putting the person into trance, which is done by rhythmic drumming, chanting, meditation, guided imagery, lots of ways of getting people into this. Trance doesn't mean you don't know what's going on. It just means really focused awareness. So if you get people into those states, then they may experience a person sitting on a chair as having golden light radiating from them. And then the theory that God returns is golden light, this assumption, and then the internal experience, this hallucination, so to speak, of seeing them the way they they lock in, and then you have this powerful cocktail of change. So giving people experiences is something that we all have, you know. So you walk into a bar, you see someone, a lady that's you know attractive, your your hormones start going, and you have feelings. And those feelings are not intellectual. They're emotions. They bypass sort of intellectual. I mean, you can think about it, all the processes, but usually it's, it's a feeling state. So what groups are good at, at doing, are, I mean, are, uh, uh, successful groups, is to induce experiences in people that bind them, like falling in love. <laughs> um, but in this case, it might be falling in love with an idea or a teacher. And it's a sort of maybe a different type of love, maybe not a romantic love, but love is not rational. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and I'm not talking about that from experience. Um, so what about the the leaders of these groups? You're Jim Jones, who I, I understand that a lot of people were shot, but I guess some people willingly drank uh, the cocktail or a Manson who can get people to kill. What it, is there a certain charisma or what is it about these people that can get people to do, I mean, for lack of a better term, crazy things? Yeah. So just to, uh, on the, on the Jim Jones piece, I think the majority of the people, I don't know the number. I, 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 if I, I have the research, but it's a, a huge number of those people where they're shot or forced to take the, uh, the poison. Yeah, oh, okay. It, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it worked, I, I think there was 930 some people that died and, and it may have been over 800 people were forced. So. Gotcha. Yeah. There's a uh, movie called uh, the sacrament that is yeah, uh, yeah. kind of a retelling of that, but yeah. So, so the, um, the people are leaders can be charismatic, uh, certainly, and charisma is something that's not tangible. Frequently, uh, leaders also some can not be charismatic, just as long as their lieutenants are. Their lieutenants can recruit and tell you how wonderful this this uh, leader is. Um, but some of them are psychopaths. <laughs> uh, that basically they, they, their needs are what. Your needs are not, or your person is not um, uh, a consideration for them. It's what their needs are. And so that's how they live. I mean, so there are people who are just not good people. And in our society, there are, you know, there are people that we lock them up, <laughs> we put them away. But we live in a country, and there's many countries that have freedom of religion, the freedom of, you know, we can express any idea we want, no matter how strange it is. It's only when we act upon it that there's a problem. And so Jim Jones, for example, Ross and Carter uh, um, campaigned with him. Um, uh, Willie Brown uh, uh, 
campaign uh, said he was one of the greatest men. All these political people aligned themselves with him when he was in San Francisco because of the good works that he was doing. And you couldn't do a lot of things. I think he was even on the election commission, if I'm not mistaken. You couldn't do a lot of things in San Francisco uh, politically without Jim Jones's support. He was, uh, you know, he had the, the political side to it. Now, he also had another side to him. And when that started manifesting, I, I guess that could be deb- debatable. But certainly, as you know, there's that expression, power corrupts and ab- absolute power corrupts, absolutely. He moved in a more cr- narcissistic, uh, <laughs> megalomaniac way. And with him came followers. And those who didn't go along with it, you know, sometimes were beaten and and you know, bad things were done to them. And when families, there's some evidence that when families wanted to leave and when they created this, you know, the place in Guyana, he had all the kids of the group go down to like, you know, go to our camp and they went to the camp, but they weren't allowed out. So their parents had to come down to get them and then they didn't get their leave. So I think that it's a slippery slope. There are, there are those crazy people that uh, are megalomaniacs uh, and they, do these bad things. And then there are people who are just self-centered and narcissistic, and they want people to believe what they they have to say. And there are people that, for example, have that are uh, maybe have they have hallucinations and if you start hallucinating people say you're crazy but if i can get you to have the same hallucinations that i have then i'm not crazy because we have a shared experience so uh, i think there's a again it's 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 difficult because we want to put it in a a basket of one thing or another and so i think that there's a lot of different versions of of these uh, you know abusive people um and they it manifests in relationships and we can see abusive relationships where a husband may be you know using the bible to say that he has authority over his wife and she has to do what he says if she does do what he says then you know there's a problem and it you know from from a, a liberal philadelphia point of view that would be abuse um but within those cultural culture cultures and religious systems not abuse I mean, it's abuse either way you go, but it's not viewed as abuse. It's viewed as, you know, doing what God wants me to do, which is be submissive to my husband. Right. He has to be the head. Yeah. And I think that, um, was it Heaven's Gate or something where everybody, Hail Bop Comet was coming so they can kill themselves? And I, I guess everyone involved with that, I mean, including the leader, has to actually believe that, right? I mean, well, <laughs> they're not lying, yeah, yeah. right? Or, well, I believe, and, and you know, uh, so we're going from what research says to more my beliefs. My beliefs are that, and in from experience, that everyone in groups have doubts all the time. And so, what groups are, do, are good at doing is getting you to sublimate those those doubts. They give you strategies not to dwell on the doubts. So the strategies can be, you know, a, a mental technique or a hypnotic technique or some busy activity or some theological reason that when you start having doubts about it, you it, you go back to those ideas. And then there are the true believers. Uh, so I don't think that everyone that went up into the spaceship that committed suicide was 100% sold out. I'm, I'm sure that there were a lot of people who had doubts. But sometimes 
the structure of some groups is that you become so isolated from the from your family, from your previous identity, that there doesn't seem to be a way to connect back to that. And so in my work, especially, what I try to do is to teach families is how to connect back to, how to make a smooth path for the person to come back to, have something on the outside. Um, because when you don't have that and you're in a closed system, then it's you could come to the view that it's either I stay with a group or I don't exist because I have nowhere else to come to. I have nothing. And so some people stay in these systems to protect their investment. You know, you've been doing this for 25 years. It's got to be true. But if it, but what if it's not? Then <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. And, and think about that in terms of marriages or, you know, relationships. People are in relationships and then they find out something about their partner that they didn't know. And they're like, what happened? Why didn't I see that? Uh, but, but they might continue with it because they're protecting their investment. And then we have that in our politics. You know, well, we have it in politics all the time. And we know from research on leaders, leaders tend to lie uh, of all persuasions. Uh, they're, they're persuasive things. But, you know, then they kick into this sort of people kick into tribal qualities and tribe takes over. And I think that's something we probably all experience because our family is like a tribe or, you know, our neighborhood's a tribe, our political party's a tribe, our church is a tribe. And when our tribe gets attacked or we feel it's being attacked, we sometimes don't think about this, you know, the, the bad parts of what our family has done or our neighbors have done or our community has done. We don't think about that. We think about our tribes being attacked. Gotcha. So uh, there's a, a really great uh, cult movie uh, called Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene about uh, uh, a lady who is, leaves the cult and has those leftover, that leftover impact, PTSD, whatever you want to call it. Um, can you get into a little bit about for those who successfully leave a cult, what is Obviously, it's different for every person, but is there is there that lasting effect of like the like the lingering thoughts of the cult? So, the research indicates that about a million people join and leave groups in North America every year, and about ninety percent of the people who join a group leave on their own. It's just a matter of when. Could be for the first day, could be for fifty years, but most people leave on their own. So depending, with that in mind, depending upon what the, the person's experience in the group is, it's easier or less easy <laughs> to leave. So if you join a group and, you know, you learn to meditate and then it's a cult and you, you, you buy into it and you're 18 years old and when you're 19, then there's something else that comes along and you leave that group and, you know, probably not going to have long until <laughs> you, know, you fall in love or something else takes over and your life moves on. There are people who maybe their 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 families in the group and when they leave the group uh they're cut off from their children so they have the choice of of i can leave but if i leave i will i never can talk to my kids again so that certainly may well, certainly that may for that person who has to have left their family behind and their family has completely cut them off well i don't think they probably let go of those feelings really quickly Different people respond to the, to the same group differently. And, and it's always amazing to me to see people that are in horribly abusive situations that 
you know, they have this ability to move on. Some people, they don't, and uh, they have the lingering effects of the group. And if you think about it, I go back to this sort of a falling in love marriage uh, uh, perspective, you know, analogy. There are people who fall in love, they get married, they have kids, then they decide that they don't like the person. About it happens about 50% of marriages, and they move on. They go on to a next life. Now, some we all have friends that fall into that category. And then some of those of our friends who fall into that category that they've divorced hang on and really are still complaining and bitching about what a horrible person that spouse was. And it you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, they're still traumatized or they still have this anger about the, the, what happened to them. Other people, they don't have that experience. So I think that we, it might be helpful to look at groups in that same way. So in our work, and I was affiliated with the International Cultic Studies Association, and in our cult uh, sort of recovery work, what we're focused on are, are those people that have had difficulties, have been ostracized, have the PTSD, have have those experiences. So the sort of sampling of people that I would run into are the people that you are sort of describing. Um, but but I, I don't want to minimize that not everybody has that experience. I mean, I mean as humans, we're resilient. <laughs> you know, the, I, I, I went to Catholic school for nine months, <laughs> and it was, it was for me it was a traumatizing experience. You know, other people went through the same traumatizing experience, and it wasn't traumatizing to them. Um, you know, the nuns were horrible. <laughs> um, so it's it just everyone has a different sort of reaction to these 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 uh, our life's experience, and I think that if we look at it that way, the way I'm trying to paint is is that to help people see that being affiliated with these groups is something that can happen to anyone uh, given the right circumstances because the mechanisms aren't much different than the mechanisms that we have in our own lives about how we adopt beliefs, how we adopt cultures, how we separate from cultures, how we <laughs> change the influence that our social groups have on us, our political groups. I mean, it's the nature of the, sort of the human condition. Uh, but you know, there are bad groups or there are bad people who get people to do bad things. And there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, well, even like you mentioned before with uh, a, a sporting group, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like a football team, your, yeah. your your favorite football team can commit a penalty and you don't see it. You just, yeah. <laughs> that, you, don't. you know, why would the ref call that? Um, so tell me about the work that you do uh, in uh, cult mediation. Um, sure. A family would come to you and talk about their, say someone in their family is in, in a cult and they want to get them out or do you deal with them yeah. after the fact or? Well, and all of those, everything you've described. So if we could take, uh, you know, uh, I mean, because I, I, I look at every situation as unique and, and don't lump things together. So, but if for, to illustrate, so somebody joins a group that their family doesn't like, um, and thinks that the group has a bad history and that there could be potential harm. So if my child decides they were going to join ISIS, I'd probably, you know, be crazy <laughs> because we, we, ISIS has this history. Sure. So what I would want to do, do is the first thing we would do 
is to have the parents fill out very lengthy intake forms uh, so that we can understand the nature of that child or person or adult or whoever it is joining the group what's their history like there's their their, 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 what background did they come from um were they the kind of person who you know in 10th grade they were obsessed with soccer and 11th grade it was violin and 12th grade it was speaking french are they the kind of person that gets totally absorbed in something and then it they drop it and go on to something else to drop it or they the kind of person who picks up and just stays with the one thing they become obsessed might give us some insight into how what their connection is going to be to the group so is my child just reading isis material uh, because they're curious or because they're doing a research project um, for school or because they think the ideas are interesting or they are um, disenfranchised by their friends and society and they see injustice in the world and they think that these ideas are meaningful to them. Uh, it answers some of those ideas. So we want to sort that out. What, what, what category is it in? Because if the research is correct that about 90% of the people who join groups leave, then what we want to do is create an environment where it's easy for someone to leave. Um, so when I believe that if you're a parent and you're, you're having conflict with your loved one, and as long as you're in conflict with them and they're in a group, they don't have to think about their own things that they don't like about the group because they've got an enemy. Oh. They have that. The, they have the enemy, right? Which so, is what, which is, I guess, I'm assuming why they want to drive a wedge between you and family. Well, I think that it comes. It's sort of a chicken and the egg kind of thing. But but families' reactions to someone adopting a new belief, families' reactions to their daughter or their son falling in love with somebody they don't like that comes from the wrong side of the tracks, that doesn't fit into their cultural milieu, you know, or any of those things. They're the wrong political party. Any of those kinds of things, it makes it, the person doesn't have to think about the ideas and the, the things that they're doing. They do, but they don't have to when you have this enemy. So if we look at politics today, as long as we can talk about how horrible the Democrats are, if we're Republican, we can talk about how bad the Republicans are if we're a Democrat, because we, we don't have to think about uh, the nuance. What we can do is have something to focus our attention on that's not the uncomfortable feelings that we have within ourselves. So in helping a family, first we wanted to identify, you know, learn about the person, sort of what their makeup is. Um, we want a, a, ther a psychologist to review what is known about the person. Does, does there seem to be, you know, a history of mental illness? Um, we want to sort those out. Drug usage, we want to sort those out. We want to find out what the vulnerabilities would be for a person coming back into the home coming back to their family, reconnecting. And so then our work is about trying to help families create that, that sort of safe space for someone to come out to, that they're not going to get their finger wagged at them, that I told you so. <laughs> they're not going to be a shame that they wasted X amount of years. They could have been a doctor and they're not a doctor. All of those things that leak out. <laughs> We, we we work with families on trying to address those things. And so most families want to tell their children what's wrong with the group they're involved in. And I personally believe that if you were a half-decent parent, your child knows what you 
think about things. You don't have to ask them. You, you don't have to tell them. And then the, the example I use is when my mother was alive, when the telephone would ring, I could tell by the way that ringer rang, certainly by the first sound of her breath, how the conversation was going to go, because I knew my mother. So you, you just, you, you know, so kids know what their parents think about. They know what their, their goals are for their kids, or if they're disappointed, not disappointed. You don't have to emphasize those things. In a way, I, I, we, we try to encourage people to do the opposite, to find those things that they have in common that they can agree with with, with what the ch- child is trying to do. Um, so I, when I was, uh, you know, uh, TM trying to te- teach, one of the people I wanted my, to teach was my father. And my father grew up, uh, his parents, my grandparents met at the University of Minnesota in 1900 and homesteaded a farm in South Dakota. Um, my dad grew up on a, a farm. He became the highest ranking enlisted man in the U.S. Navy. This is somebody that comes from a very different worldview. And he has a nice you know, son who knows the, what the world is about. He knows how the universe functions because he's learned it from the Maharishi. And he wants his father to, uh, to you know, say, I want to save my father's soul. And so, you know, I'm using my father as a model of how uh, uh, he interacted with me. When I would come home, there was not criticism of what I was doing. There was a focus on the good parts so that they could agree with. Um, they listened. And I don't know how he listened to my crazy ranting of, of, of uh, <laughs> you know, the gods and energy and all of these things because it's just not his worldview. And when I would finally get to the point of saying, you know, Dad, why don't you learn to meditate? <laughs> and he would always come back to something along the lines as, you know, son, you love meditating. And what I love doing is riding horses. And if I had that extra 20 minutes a day, I'd go ride a horse because that's what I love doing. But you love doing this, <laughs> meditating. And so I want you to be happy. And so he found ways of staying connected without invalidating me. Gotcha. Which makes an easy glide path to come back out to. And so in that cult mediation process or intervention process, a lot of our work Really, there is work with a counseling a person and what to talk to them about. But a lot of it is, first of all, creating that safe space to come to. Because we all have, you know, we go, we go to some friend's house and it's great. You go to other friend's house and it's tension. Which one do you want to go to? Uh, if every time you interact with somebody, they're giving you a hard time or trying to sell you something, or you don't want to be around them. So how can, you know, how can we get families to find that place in themselves where they can at least model respect, no matter how bizarre it is, um, and model that they've made errors in their lives without saying that, you know, friends of, you know, friends tell you, hey, this is a good stock. Well, you might not check it out, all the details by the stock, you might invest in it. You know, this is a good real estate deal. You might buy the property and you haven't done the potential research you could do. Um, and so we all take ideas. So being able to, you know, model for, for your loved one who's in being, potentially being manipulated, you know, mistakes that you've made. And without, without a lot of judgment, I think that that's the basis of what we, that creates the basis. So to facilitate change or to do an intervention, someone, ha- you have to have a relationship with the person. 
And so to facilitate change, relationship is required. So a lot of what my work is, is about, is about teaching people to have relationships with people who believe things or think things or do things that are so abhorrent <laughs> to that person. And so it's, that's, you know, I think, a big part of it and being comfortable Look, there's so many groups that I deal with are groups that I just think is are absolutely you know insane what they do. As much as I want to ask you to name them, I won't. Uh, but go ahead. Because I'm not because I won't give you the name. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Because uh, I I'm not a, I'm not a you know there there's a there's people who are cult fighters so to speak and with all the caveats of the word cult that we've talked about earlier sure and their idea is to fight the group and you know they they put their attention on that getting back at families trying to invalidate well the reality is in my 35 years in this field a handful of group leaders have been shut down and even those who have been shut down they still have followers <laughs> even like you mentioned if you're if you're saying to your daughter you will not see that boy anymore. Yeah. Well, well suddenly that suddenly that boy looks really great to that daughter. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh I I definitely see the 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 advantage of I know your instinct is to tell them how foolish they've been and how, right. you know, they've made a big mistake because they no longer believe in what you believe in or whatever, but don't come from a place of antagonism or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Come from and, a place and, of respect. Yeah. And I, 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 I can also see where fighting that urge is uh, something that you would have to instill in them. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, what I ask families to do, I mean, if my child did that, I'd be bat raving crazy. You know, I'd be doing everything I would tell them not to do because those are the instincts. Right. So people engage like me because in my experience of 35 years of doing this, this is what I find is successful. And I think that the research backs up. This is what is helpful. To, and, and fundamentally, it is how do you stay connected to somebody you disagree with? Um, you know, I, I had a sister who was married to a, a guy that uh, my father really did not like. Uh, and when he would walk in the room, the veins would stand, you know, come out on his forehead. He just did not like this person. I knew it. And everybody knew it, but he was respectful, kind, um, treated him like everyone else, but he had his feelings about the person. Um, and so because he, if he didn't do that, he wouldn't have a connection with my sister. Right. And so when it got really bad, my father was a safe place to come to yep. for my sister. And so I really think it's really important for people in family systems to find somebody. It doesn't have to be a family member, somebody that, some, they, they, that can play that role of being that lifeline, that anchor, that beachhead on the outside. And uh, that's, I think it makes it easier to, for people to leave. And also, um, if, you're, if you're saying – there's this Xenu guy and Thetans or whatever, and that's all crazy. Well, I mean, it's pretty out there that God took human form and then died for our sins too. Uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are beliefs. These yeah. are beliefs. Um, They're beliefs, and beliefs are not necessarily rational. 
so let's say, uh, just to wrap things up, let's say that someone uh, has a family member who is in a cult or they believe that it's a bad situation um, and they want to help facilitate uh, the exit from that, from that, what would the steps be that they would take to get a hold of you or what have you? So we have a, a number of websites, Cult Mediation, uh, Cult Intervention 101. Um, there's the International Cultic Studies Association. Their website is ICSA Home. Dot com, icsahome.com. And so that's one of the large, sort of the largest academically oriented organizations in this field and in recovery. So I, I would encourage families to, to reach out. Um, you know, we're always glad to speak with families and, you know, sort of give them an assessment of what we think. Um, I think our, our goal is not to do interventions and not to do mediations to create an environment where they're not necessary. Uh, but although we although we do them, um, that's not that's the last resort um, because it's uh, it's time consuming, it's costly, it involves a lot of work. Um, but can you create that environment for the person to come out to? So I would, you know, you can reach out to us at cultmediation.com or cultintervention101 uh, or inter, excuse me, intervention101.com. Um, the International Cultic Studies Association. I think that one thing that we want to caution families for doing is when you go on the web and you look up and find out information about a group, and then you think that this information is bad and your children should understand it, most good manipulators already know what that information is out there and have answers for them. And what you're doing when you bring that negative information to your loved one is you're telling them, I don't like this group, and you're giving them the playbook to hang you with. Or you're giving them the rope because the, a good manipulator then goes, okay, your parents think this, and now I want to help maybe facilitate you not being around your parents. Or that information that your parents are giving you, you now have a, a, a deeper understanding of it. Because you're, you, when you read stuff on the, the net, if you're a parent, it just looks bad. You haven't done all the back work, you know, <laughs> reading the footnotes and knowing the context of the people who are saying those things. A group leader just has to say, oh, Mary, who said that about me, you know what she is. She's a, uh, she's an inhabited by beings another planet. And they go, oh, well, that's it. So whatever Mary says, it's not valid. So I would, I think that the value, there's value in information, but the real value is in understanding the information and, 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 and understanding the impact of the information. Information alone can cause problems when it has to understand it. And learning and understanding takes time and it takes effort on the family side. And so if you're interfering with someone's life without their permission, and that's what you really are doing when you dislike what they're involved in, you're interfering with someone's life um, and they're not asking you to do it, then you should really understand what you, why, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Uh, you, should, uh, you should ask yourself those questions. And there's some ethics around, uh, ethical questions you should ask yourself before you interfere with someone's life. Because are, you can get someone to leave a group, but then what happens? Are you, are you going to be there on the other side to catch them? Or what is that environment that they're going to come back into? Is it going to be a, a good environment or is it going to be worse than the group? So those are the things that I think that families should look at. Um, 
And what we try to do is through either you know working with families on Skype or Zoom or doing workshops that we do um, regularly around the country and around the world uh, so that families can come. We do series. We just completed a 30-day series, 30 of um, webinars, uh, sometimes twice a day. Um, there were for during this COVID period when people were sort of locked down. So there's a lot of places that we, you know you can get for free uh, to learn about these things um, and get the experience of other people. But ultimately, whatever decisions families make, they have to be comfortable with. It has to fit for them. It has to feel right to them. It has to fit within their sort of ethical codes, their their morals, their religious ideas of who they are, their family system, their culture, whatever suggestions that are made or they, they come across, it's got to be comfortable to them. Because in the end, the family is going to pay the cost of having a relationship with their loved one or not. And that's the most important thing is to have a relationship. Because for me, relationships are more important than beliefs. Yep. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, w- what a great way to end it. You know, the, you said earlier that, uh, you know, leaders lie. Well, uh, you're a great leader in this field and I think you've been pretty honest with us today. I, I thank you so much for, uh, for your information and hopefully that has helped some people with the, with the idea of don't rush into things. Yes get educated and actually go to someone who understands the nuances of what's going on. So thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Have a great day. And that is our show. I'd like to thank my guests, one BR writer-director, David Marmer, and cult mediation specialist, Patrick Ryan. And of course, thank all of you for listening. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet. 